0: Hey everybody, you are listening to Canary Cry Radio, and Razzle Dazzle, I'm your best buddy Basil.
1: And this is Gon's. welcome to episode number
0: 168. We're in it, we're going again. The momentum is building, Gans. Uh, yeah, I, I can tell, yes, finally. <laughs> we're almost at
1: 700 for Canary Cry News Talk, but... Oh, it's exhausting just to think about it. Yeah, radio is a little bit heavier to carry, though.
0: Yes, it's, uh... It's a whole other thing. And thanks for being here, folks. If you're listening to this on the Canary Cry News Talk feed, we hope you enjoy this uh, break into programming uh, with a conversation with uh, a good friend of the show for a long time. I guess as of this year, we've known Brian for uh, 10 years, a whole decade.
1: Yeah, the, the, ten, yeah, the, the double digits... April of 2013 was the first time he was on. So yes, we're over 10 years with Brian and he's done some big jobs since then. I mean, he's always been prolific and he's won awards for writing Hollywood scripts and stuff like that. But uh, Basil, did you know that he wrote the script for My Son Hunter? I did not know that. Do you know the movie, My Son Hunter? I do not. Oh, okay. (laughs) It's a political satire about (laughs) Hunter Biden, which is uh, timely for what's unfolding right now. Fine. We'll talk. We talk a little bit about that at the end of the conversation. But yeah, Brian's a good guy. Good to catch up. And you missed out because of the emus.
0: Yeah, I had. a So this interview is recorded on a not regular show day, Mm -hmm. uh, which, you know was going to be fine emus no the e- emus the, know, not, no show days yeah the evening before the interview the one of the emus uh just disappeared was gone not in the pen just gone and the sun was setting and it was getting cold <laughs> and i was looking around and running all around the place i could not find and then just the sun went down and that was it. I'm like, okay, you're on your own, little emu. I will, I will check back in the morning. But you know, when you're, you'll know this someday, gons. When your little babies grow up mm-hmm. and they leave the pen, mm-hmm. and you know, you worry about them, but you hope that you've equipped them for life and packs of coyotes mm-hmm. and whatever else may be waiting for them out in the world. Uh, it was a good opportunity to meet some of my neighbors. I met, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, got the whole neighborhood on it there, which means, you know, a you couple up of weird dudes a quarter mile in each direction. I was going to
1: say, it would be funny if you had a, a printed out a flyer, but you don't really have to make any copies.
0: You can just yeah, draw it on a I, couple uh, napkins. One of my neighbors, you know, He's one of these guys, great guy, just doesn't have like a whole, a whole lot going on. <laughs> so I was texting everybody just to let them know, keep an eye out for the emu. I'll get it tomorrow. Let me know if you see it. Uh, and this was an older guy and he comes out with the most radical thermal night scope that I've <laughs> ever seen. And he's like, I'll walk around with you, I'll look for it. I'm like, I was already like calling it, like I was gonna call it a night and go inside. But he came out with this just incredible like military grade uh, thermal night scope. I'm like, well, I've never gotten to play with one of those before. So I just kind of walked around in the pitch darkness with my strange neighbor. Playing with uh, thermal night scopes looking for an emu. Did
1: you look up to see if you can see anything in the sky with the thermal? Yeah.
0: No. <sighs> no I was too busy Come looking on. for it. A...
1: That's where they're hiding all the UFOs or just my hanging out baby above you.
0: Gons. I was looking for my baby. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, next morning, a different neighbor sent me a text Hey, your bird's in my yard. <laughs> And getting the bird back was a real hassle. <laughs> Those emus, I will tell you what, they are not leash trained. And they are strong. <laughs> they are so strong. I got some bruises. I got some raptor claws to the legs. But that's neither here nor there. That's just to warm you up, folks, for this excellent conversation with Brian Gadawa. Gans, of course, taking control when... Basil's off looking for a giant bird in the wilderness. Gons is here to hold down the fort. And that's what makes us a good team, Gons. Yeah, it was also a battle here with the minis. But that's... Oh, good. Did we get some kids on tape? Oh, of course.
1: They're always budging. But, you know, there's a a thing called editing, which helps with the non-live shows. Wow. So hopefully they don't
0: Look at that. You get a special treatment today, folks. Too much. Yeah. Okay, well, real quick before we start, uh, I want to mention this because it is December and I didn't want to skip, you know, I didn't want to s- s- skip a plug because uh, it, this one's got a short time limit on it and I don't want anybody to miss it. The Canary Cry calendar, yes, yes. The Canary Cry calendar is at the printers as we speak. This one is the coolest Canary Cry calendar. For those who don't know, uh, every year a group of producers led by Epony Blaze, Dame Epony Blaze to you, uh, and artists and uh, wonderful listeners to the show, they get together, they create the Canary Cry calendar. We have nothing to do with it. And that's the best part. They do it out of the kindness of their heart and the brilliance of their brains. This is the fourth calendar in a row. Incredible. And, uh... Oops. They keep getting better. They just keep getting better. Sorry, Guns, I didn't know if you were going to still be there. I pressed a button on my keyboard and it put my computer to sleep. But we're back. Uh, yes, can hear Craig calendar? Here's the thing, folks. You can't buy it. We don't sell calendars we're not a calendar selling organization we don't do retail uh because we are you know we make ourselves feel better by saying we are principled We are principled when it comes to the value-for-value model, which means we don't sell any products. We don't get any money from ads, corporations, commies, or cartels. We're exclusively funded by people who get value from this show, and people have been getting value from this show for over a decade, and look at us. We're still here. It's incredible, but for for those of you who are signed up For the canary cry supply drop you will be receiving the calendar in your box so you don't have to do anything if you want the calendar there's two ways to do it number one go to canarycrysupplydrop.com sign up to support this show for 33 33 a month that's right that's only two dollars and 77 cents per show and uh, what you're saying is, hey, I value you. I value you, Basil and Gans. Thank you for your work. I've been listening for one year, five years. Some people have been listening for 10 years. We still get notes. Hey, been listening for a decade. This is my first time producing. And you know what? We welcome them with open arms. Uh, and that could be you by going to Uh, sign up and become a part of the show. We cannot survive without our producers. The other way, if you don't want to sign up on a monthly thing, and you know it's not really, it's not really your style, maybe it's not in the budget in an ongoing uh, manner. You can also executive produce the show. ...during the month of December. That's right. Not only will you be hailed as a hero across the globe, the world... I can't say globe. I across the world. We're PSYOP to not be able to say globe anymore. By thousands and thousands of people just like you... they will be thanking you from across the oceans... ...for executive producing the show. Uh, uh, but you will also get the chance to receive the calendar... You just say, hey, I'm executive producing the show. I value the show. Please keep doing the show. And I would like a calendar. And then we send it to you. It's incredible. So two ways, sign up for the supply drop at canarycrysupplydrop.com or executive produce at support. I think that's all I had to say, Gans. Did you have anything else? I have saved all
1: of my words for the conversation with Brian Godawa.
0: Okay, well, let's get to it, folks. Woo!
2: My name is Charles Cullen. They call me the Philosopher killer. Some call me insane. But Aristotle said that no genius has ever existed without a touch of madness. Some say I'm evil. But I say I make my victims face the consequences of their own ideas. What about you? Could you defend your beliefs, if your life depended on
3: it?
0: Cruel Logic, The Philosopher-Killer A brilliant theological thriller novel by
1: Brian James Gadawa. Readers are saying, the most thrilling novel
0: you will read this year A page-turner with shocking twists Get it now at Amazon.com in Kindle paperback and
2: audiobook
1: Cruel Logic with Brian Godawa. Brian's been on the show many times. I think the first time he was on Canary Cry Radio was back in April of 2013. It was over 10 years ago. Episode 45, interview with Brian Godawa. And if you go to the link in the show notes, you'll see all the times he appeared. I believe it's seven. You are tagged for eight episodes, but... It could be because you did a short hit with us on the uh, episode with, oh, who was it? I forget now. Oh, 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 Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort. There was that one. I don't know if you actually jumped on with us, but there was that. And then also um, you did our episode 100. You did, uh, (laughs) uh, is Brian Godawa a heretic? You've you've been through the ringer, you've been through the ringer, (laughs) and the canary cry. The eschatology
3: one, that was the eschatology
1: one. (laughs) Yes, yes, and uh, most recently, December 21st of 2019, Jezebel, Harlot, Queen of Israel. And uh, Brian's back with a new book. You're behind, you're behind. I know, I know, so (laughs) many many things. Um, You're back, you have a new book, Cruel Logic, The Philosopher-Killer, it's considered a theological thriller novel, Uh, we'll talk about that. Great to have you back though, Brian, good to see you. Great to be here, Gans. Where's Basil? Uh, I think he was trying to fix some of his robot arm army and and yeah, I, uh, an emu got involved. I don't know the whole story, but we'll hear about it later. And maybe he'll hop in. I don't know. There, there's a chance that he'll just appear.
3: I forgive him.
1: <laughs> All right. He's got a couple more strikes. Okay. Um. So, Brian, what have you been up to? I know uh, it's... <laughs> You know, a lot of things have happened since we last spoke. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a, what was it, a pandemic or some kind of worldwide shutdown that uh, people like us were saying that, you know, the world elite might try to pull off, but we were considered crazy conspiracy theory lunatics for a while. Um, But, you know, it happened. And, uh, yeah, so
3: what was that like? And and what I'm sure you had a lot of time to write. Well, yes and no, because as a matter of fact— uh, my wife and I moved during the pandemic. In fact, in November of 2020, when the election was finalizing, uh, we wanted to get ahead of any potential riots that might have been occurring, <laughs> had Trump won, right? <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, and, but we were also escaping everything, you know, the fascism of California uh, and the fact that it's going down the toilet and the, the middle class, which is what we were. Would are the ones who were continuing to get the brunt of everything, whether it's the defunding of the police in in Los Angeles that would result in more crime and more of us murdered and and dist- and uh, violently attacked, or uh, you know, of course, all the taxes and just the the whole government uh, of California is just so corrupted beyond redemption and such. So, um, and then also <clears throat> what it, what happened was you know, when I, when I saw the writing on the wall of Hollywood, you know, I've, I've always been an independent filmmaker. I've never been in the big studio movies. So I always find my independent producers and directors and who have a common view and a common vision, but we used to be able to make our movies and get them under the radar type of thing. You know, you do a great movie and then get a distributor like Lionsgate or whatever to distribute it. But when, you know, but when the whole, um, the Me Too thing and then COVID and everything, uh, and then the, um, You know, just the whole wokeness uh, Mm. became more explicit and they started, you know, the Oscars, you know, as a perfect example of just, okay, we're not going to allow any nominations unless you have woke numbers of, you know, minorities working below the line and above the line if you don't have enough... Enough of the certain quote racial diversity that we want. Your movie's not going to be good enough right. to be nominated, you know. And when they when they embraced racism to that level, I knew I knew my time was pretty much up there, um, because they were now hunting out. You know, they even executives were saying, you know, oh yeah, we don't want any more middle middle aged white men, you know. We're we're looking for people of color, et cetera. <laughs> so, so that bizarre. racism just took hold, you know of of Hollywood. It, it had always been there, of course, mm-hmm. but it was just explicit now. And I knew any little chance I had of getting under the radar was gone. And, and I knew that I, I wouldn't want to be rewriting scripts anyway, that in order to wokeify them and add a trans right. character who's a hero and all that kind of garbage. Right, you
1: know? right. So that's interesting. So there was a, a clear indication, as far as writers were concerned. I mean, you are a writer, and I, you know we're going through the writer's strike and all this mm-hmm. stuff. And maybe I'll ask you about that. I'm sure you have some great insight on that. Um, but I don't. Term- but- you don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
3: well, just- I'm not. I'm not in the guild. Okay. You're and I have the not guild, been. But at least, uh, and
1: it. So it didn't matter to me at all. Okay. Great. <laughs> you know what? That's actually a, probably a better message. You know, to do your do your thing. Do it independently. Don't try to. Yeah. Uh, join the system or join the machine. It always ends bad. So, uh, but yeah, yeah who, who was who was behind those quotas and how were they able to bend the arm of whoever to get get it to the point where it is so institutionalized that you couldn't win awards? I mean, this is a public you know, media entertainment. It is it is a public, uh, pro, it's a product for public consumption, which means people, everyone's watching. So it's not like you can totally hide it. And of course, uh, as it got more blatant, more people realized it. And I think there was a symbiotic thing where the people behind it got even more bold and more upfront because well, everyone kind of knows, so I guess we'll just double down. And so, but who who or what was behind it in your view? How were they able to establish it so uh, concretely and for the whole world to be able to see?
3: Yeah. Well, notwithstanding the fact that um, I do... I'm not a conspiracy theory-minded guy in general. I've never really cared too much about those, except for uh, using them to write stories for movies and novels, because they're great story ideas. But uh, with the last five years, I've definitely come to realize, okay, a lot of the conspiracy theories actually were true and came true. And so now I'm much more open-minded to that than I ever have been. However, I still think, though, um, just based on my experience and what I see, I I see it as a sociological phenomenon, the hive mind. All right. Um, And that is when you get so many people who are insulated from the outside world, they create a little cocoon, kind of like Hicks out in the Appalachian Mountains. Well, Hollywood is like those Hicks. They only work with each other and they get all the money because entertainment world, you know, gets so much money for talent, not for actually wisdom. Right. Um, And so they they don't need to really care about the world, uh, even of their audience or so they think. And so I think what happens is they all think the same way you know Hollywood is dominated you know by by leftism and liberalism and such and and on every level and always has been um, not always but you know within you know the last 50 60 years it certainly has been dominated by that and so I think what happens is and they all are kind of linked in with that hive mind when they see other things going on in the political sphere and they all kind of think alike it's more of a consensus than a conspiracy but nonetheless mm. it um, there's a sort of thing that happens uh, you know when when so many people think so similarly and then they they're in an echo chamber mm. and and be, they become engulfed in it and are unaware of reality. And I think that that's what happened with them. Um, and, and it's just a natural pro- progression of that echo chamber where they keep getting bolder because their peers are cheering them on and the people who are hiring them are doing so as well. So, and then everybody feeds off each other. And so it creates this self-affirming system of you know, ignorance, bigotry, hatred, racism, and that's what Hollywood is. And so, um, uh, yeah, so that, that's kind of how I see it. And um, however, you know, we are seeing some backlash, obviously, like with Disney and such, and uh, and that's good. Uh, it should be more so. The problem is the public that hate the woke uh, factor of Hollywood still keep their subscriptions to Disney. Some of them do, you know, obviously some have not. But there's still enough who will, and they're still able to make some money, and who knows what their decision will be. Because Michael Medved said this 20 years ago in his book, and and, you know, he had come out, he had had a lot of experience with Hollywood too, and and he basically said, you know, you're misunderstanding it if you think Hollywood's just after the money. They'll do anything to, to make money. That's not true, actually. Yes, there are some executives and some people in that realm who are prioritizing money and finances but the dominant amount of them don't. They're willing to lose money um, if they're gonna promote their ideology because it's their religion. So that's why, just like Christians will do, Christians will do things for free a lot, right? It's, it's ministry. Well, their religion and their ministry is their ideology of changing the world. That's why they're willing to lose money on movies, and that's why they're able to, uh, you know, as they do, they learn, and learn how to make better movies, and then better movies with their ideology in it, and of course, there's a breaking point because at some point, when it becomes preaching propaganda, I think it does turn off a lot of people, but not enough people, right? Um, so you know, you have James Cameron, who's you know a cl- you know he's an earth worshipping pagan idolater, uh, and his movies, his Avatar movies, are clear um, pagan. Uh, promotion right yeah world but they're really deep. well told tales he's a good yeah. storyteller and so the fact is is a lot of people still go and watch them you know and so that's kind of how that world works and so um so yeah the, I think there there are people you know they kind of all feed off each other and then they all get affirmed by yeah let's hunt these people down that we don't like and it used to be you know we used to kind of like I said, fly under the radar or sort of be quiet about our political views or our religious views and only, you know, sort of let them out in, in, in key important moments where it would be important. But now they're, they're hunting you. They'll, you know, they'll do searches for you on the internet to find out all your connections and then uh, cancel you. You know, they're doing that kind of a thing in Hollywood now. And so, uh, you know, I mean, sure, there are still good movies that get made. Don't get me wrong. I, i not an absolutist there because I still think I still see some good movies that are made. Although my Netflix wish list is more foreign movies than American. Uh, sometimes it's only exclusively foreign movies. Uh-huh. Uh, I think, you know, Korean action movies are, are, uh, better than, uh, American movies now where <laughs> all the action heroes have to be women. Uh, sorry. It's just not believable. It's, it's not just not believable. It's ridiculous. And <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to watch I mean, an occasional, you know, Charlize Theron as an assassin is cool and cute because you like to see beautiful women in assassin roles, but to have everything women all the time, it's just ridiculous, you know? Yeah. So So that's what, but Tom Cruise disproves that, right? Tom Cruise makes a great male masculine action movie and yeah, all the world goes and sees it, but there's not enough of that backlash to, to really affect change yet. Hopefully hopefully it will, I don't know. Yeah. But I, so I had to leave, I had to leave. Right. It, it, my chances were already almost nothing and then they just went down to almost like .000, 000 nothing, nothing one, you know, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, yeah, it seems like the, the economics was the, the, sort of the lifeblood that keeps those hive mind silos going. Um, we have, uh, we have this jingle here that I think is very appropriate. And, uh, I don't know if you saw Al Gore a few days ago talking about algorithms and, uh, people getting pulled down into rabbit trails. And at the bottom of the rabbit trails are the echo chambers. And he said (laughs) that in those echo chambers, there's a type of AI in there. It's not artificial intelligence. It's artificial insanity.
2: If you have social media that is dominated by algorithms that uh, pull people down these uh, rabbit holes that are a bit like pitcher plants, these algorithms, uh, they are the digital equivalent of AR-15s. They ought to be banned. They really ought to be banned. It's an abuse of the public forum. But when, these, when people are pulled down these uh, rabbit holes, you know what's at the bottom of the rabbit hole? That's where the echo chamber is. Uh, and if you spend too much time in the echo chamber, what's weaponized is another form of AI, not artificial intelligence, artificial insanity. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. Q, 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 QAnon, QAnon is, is just the <laughs> best known version of artificial insanity
1: that's what's down in those (laughs) (laughs) echo chambers and he would like to eliminate those rabbit trails entirely which is a whole you know different conversation but it is in line with this this topic of uh, cancel culture and and all this stuff that uh we've seen and i think the reaction and i've always been i studied sociology in college so i have this weird sociological perspective on things and i can relate to you on a lot of what you said but I also see it as a potential, because it's so absurd, it's it's almost like there is a uh, uh, intentional push to drive a counterculture, a, a sort of revolution, so to speak, uh, in a way where we've have seen this new thing, alt media, alt news, and all this kind of stuff rise. We're on fire. And it's become a viable economic option. And now that's why Elon is able to say, you know, F off to uh, to, to Disney and these big uh, corporations that used to advertise in that old model. Well, there's enough economy flowing into this alt space. And I've been critical of alt personalities just as much as mainstream personalities. But what I've noticed is that these alt personalities are rising as a by using nothing more than basic logic. You can argue Oh, there's more than two genders. And then it doesn't take much to be like, actually, no, there's only male and female. You know, and all of a sudden yeah. you're a champion. You got thousands of followers on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah buddy. I know. It's it's absurd. I get it. Yeah,
3: yeah well, uh, if I can, if I can piggyback on that. Yeah. The 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 thing about it is, uh, the insanity, you know, um, the thing about it is the godless leftist, Marxist, postmodern, you know, it's all this big ball of basically antichrist what i what i call antichrist and that's not the antichrist as in then times things but it's it's the essential soul of hating god well what happens is as evil grows and expands it becomes more absurd you know because as it gets more power and more control it takes more it, it has bolt more boldness and you know and it's almost like uh a, a you know an emergent property i don't i don't believe in that for evolution but but the the idea though is that this hive mind mentality there is something let's put it this way there is something that starts to sort of transcend and connect all the individuals right and i'm not yeah. i don't some people might believe that's an entity. I, I don't, I don't think you have to, but but just to know that there is something, the way God created us in humanity, how we are supposed to be linked in community, and there's something that happens in community that that can transcend us and become bigger than us, right? That's what the church of Christ, the body of Christ is, right? And so I think the same thing works with evil. Yeah. But but I believe what I've seen is as evil gets stronger, it becomes, it pushes the, the boundaries more and it enters into the realm of the absurd and because it thinks it can get away with it you know what i mean thus you know there there's no difference between men and women and man can become a woman and woman can become a man etc uh the whole gender thing this insanity takes root only because you have a history of philosophical buildup in the society that allows them to accept that absurdity, you know? You have to go look back with, with Wilhelm Reich in psychology decades ago, bringing in the focus of reality, not external reality, but subjective reality, and then the focus on psychology to the point where you define your own reality for you, and then it becomes there is no out external reality, okay. it's just your internal reality, and you gotta force everyone else to accept it because there's no such thing, postmodernism, as as objective reality, therefore, every this is wokeism, if, in case people are wondering, what does that term really mean? Um, and, and, and because there's no objective reality, then no claim on reality is real. All there is, is power. And power is the God of this hive, secular, woke mentality. And so therefore, if all you believe in is p- in power, well then, you'll be willing to do and believe absurd things because there is no reality that matters to you anyway and you'll just crush all opposition through fascistic um, power, right? And that's why they're doing it because as they've gotten more control, they're able to get away with it. You know, I do believe though that if, you know, if, if righteous godly men will stand up and, and uh, stand against it and you know, there are many of us speaking out about it, that's the first step, but we also have to be actively involved, then we can at least fight it and, um, stop it. And I think we start locally, you know, and build up to, you know, look like your, uh, what is it? Um, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world, that kind of a thing.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. You, you touched on so many things right there. I, the, um, the concept of, uh, uh, a negative hive mind or sort of a counterfeit to the, you know, being one in Christ. There's a lot more, and I've looked at the, the scriptures for this, and there's a lot more passages about being, one in Christ, you know, almost like a hive mind type thing, but under Christ's authority and to represent Christ and to glorify Christ. Then there is about the negative stuff. There is stuff about the negative, you know, there's revelation, I believe it's, uh, 17, where it talks about the 10 Kings and they, they have, I think it's 13 too, they, they or 14, they give over to the, the dragon, you know, so there's sort of this, conglomerate type of thing going on so there is a negative aspect to it but yeah i think you're right that there's the greater picture here is that there is a spiritual element to this there's something spiritual going on the spirit of antichrist which we know that has been around for a long time i know a lot of people are looking for the guy the antichrist but i think the the more important message is that the spirit of antichrist has been around for a long time and you know for example with the whole trans conversation um I think it's Inanna, who is a ancient goddess. And there's some yeah. some passages from ancient Sumeria, these like old Sumerian texts that talk about changing man into woman and woman into man and doing it as sort of a part of a ritual. So the, the, these concepts that break the order of creation, you know, each after their own kind, that breaks with all these pagan religions and these alt, alt religions, if you will, um, throughout history. So it, it makes sense in that, these ideas have been
3: around for a long time. It's not brand new to our generation, yeah. and and this should be a good segue into Cruel Logic, because um, in a in a sense, Cruel Logic is a novel that um, deals with woke college campus, and it 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 embodies that very hive mind mentality and how it works. Um, the storyline, if I if I may, um, moving forward into this, yeah. The storyline, the premise of Cruel Logic, it's called Cruel Logic, the Philosopher Killer, is the, the subtitle, this Philosopher Killer. And it's the story of a brilliant professor who's a philosophy professor, but he's also a serial killer. And what he does is he captures university professors and he debates them. And the topic of the debate is his moral right to kill them. So he places them in a chair and he basically says, look, if what you say is true about reality, give me one valid reason why I should not kill you and I'll let you go. <laughs> and you know, these are professors, evolutionary biologists, queer theorists, feminists, you know, all the typical classic categories of professors in universities, of course. And gee, what what do you think might be the the results of that, right? And and that that story though, takes place, and of course, you know, that's dealing with, you know, ethics and moral arguments for God's existence, et cetera, but that takes place within the environment of this woke college campus, a fictional one in California, and I, uh, I had, another storyline that goes along with that is I have a evangelical Christian freshman, first year at the college, coming in, your typical, you know, goes to a secret, sensitive church, whatever, <clears throat> and he's ill-equipped with his faith to be able to deal with the the whole wokeism, and he gets sucked up into the social justice movement and falls in love with one of the girls in it. And it it sort of chronicles his journey, his pathway into that dark world that leads ultimately you know, to force him to make some life and death decisions and choices as we have a student uprising at, at, the, at the college, right? And so um, that gives you an inside look in what's going on in the university. And in case people are wondering, this isn't just a polemic that I've written to be against it. All the events that occur to this kid is experience in the university. They're all based on actual events that have occurred within the last five or so years in co- on college campuses. I've even footnoted some of them just so people realize, you know, this mm. isn't made up, this is real stuff. I, yeah. I tend to do that. You shouldn't footnote novels, but I just, I have to, so too bad. I think, I think it's a great idea. I think that, that yeah.
1: gives it an element of realism that uh, otherwise would not be there. Yeah, and
3: the other thing is, too, I have these professors actually, you know, I've studied philosophy and ethics and such, and I have them quoting not just famous historical people, whether it's Hume's argument or the uh, Euthyphro's dilemma about ethics, but also quoting modern people like Sam, um, who's who's that famous atheist? Sam Harris. Sam Harris, quoting Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, some of these guys—they're literally quoting them in the classes because I want to give a very similar, a verisimilitude, as they call it. This, this, no, yeah, this is really stuff that they've taught. This is what I've heard, et etc. Because I wanted to actually deal with these philosophical arguments in a really profound, deep, and, and exhaustive way. But the the challenge was, but how do you, people are usually bored by philosophy? So how do you make it entertaining? Well, put it in the context of. Could you defend your beliefs if your life depended on it? And that's what these people have to do. and And I think that so far the 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 um, uh, the reception of the novel has been really great and positive. People are just loving it. And you know, it's it's an intelligent uh, thriller. It's not just a you know. Uh, it keeps you on the seat of your of of, the, of your chair, uh, scared to turn the page. But uh, because entertainment is high, highly important to me as a storyteller, but also have been able to incorporate these these you know um, philosophical and theological interactions with these worldly philosophies and worldviews that are out there in a way that I think is quite effective. You know some some people get, get bored with philosophy or it gets too deep for them, or whatever. But this at least will make it entertaining and bring it to the level of human existential experience that can yeah. make sense. Oh, this isn't just a bunch of abstract ideas. Ideas have consequences, right? Yeah. I, consequences are real world effects. This is, I
1: think your, uh, your, your brilliance and your ability as a a writer, uh, that worked in Hollywood, you know, that separates from the rest of us trying to write a blog post or something like that is you, you are able to create these settings that, uh, in fiction, but, Again, entertainment that—that that is such a great, brilliant plot line for the professor to be a killer, and he's actually doing all of his presentation of logic in a setting that is, you know, a typical university, which is ground zero for a lot of these ideas. I mean, it did Absolutely. spring from the universities all over the country and, and across the world, um, and the. I think it's a, it's a brilliant way to present these deeper philosophical conversations that you're right. They're they' They are somewhat boring. You'd have to kind of be in that headspace of searching for, uh, yeah. meaning and things like that to, to pursue these uh, lines of logic that, uh, I remember in college I was a sociology major, like I said, and we had to read a lot of Marx. you know? And I remember thinking like, man, this is depressing. Like I know we're studying like the sociological, th- but yeah. this is like, I'm having a hard time getting through this stuff. Um, but the, uh, any piece of film entertainment you brought up avatar earlier they are presenting philosophy they're presenting a worldview they are presenting they may not say it and they often don't and you would have to find i don't know movie fans or you know hardcore people to dig into the philosophy and the, the cosmology and there's all kinds of stuff with any given story but to bring the meat of those conversations and present it in this. Uh, it's, it almost sounds like a, a a storefront or something, and you have all these different yeah. ideas, and you can kind of try each one out in the context of, well,
3: can you defend your life
1: <laughs> from this crazy yeah. person? I yeah, think yeah. it's
3: brilliant. I think it's brilliant. You know, the the you mentioned something that that is also part of the package, and that is, um, I do believe this is why I think it's so it's so relevant. The the cruel logic actually began many years ago as a screenplay that I tried to get made in Hollywood. And I couldn't, I won a lot of awards with it. does, it's, it, that doesn't say whether the script's good or not because great movies sometimes often don't get made. Uh, but nevertheless, it's almost impossible to get a movie made anyway. So uh, after all those years, you know, I, I finally said I, gotta, I love this story and it's gotta get out and I wanna put it into a novel. But before I wrote it, the whole woke thing hadn't been apparent to me or much of the, the world at all because we're talking you know way over 10 years ago, right? So I thought it was very timely on, on different counts um, to bring in this whole university context because it's bigger than just this. It connects the bigger picture of the sociological and the cultural ramifications with the personal details. And that's, reality is, it's the personal does connect to the public, but we don't often see that connection. But this has two perfect storylines where he's literally uh, serial killers deconstructing people's ethical views people who are atheists who don't believe in God, etc. At the same time, I'm showing how the universities, how they've rejected Western civilization. Western civilization is the number one enemy in higher education, in all education, it used to be higher, but now it's also in grade school, right? They wanna get rid of, because they believe Western civilization is the, the root is the the ultimate evil, right? It's the racism, yeah, sexism, yeah. patriarchy. you hear those right. words all the time. That's what they believe Western civilization is, and that's why they're doing crazy things like you know redefining history as being all based on slavery and all this these lies. But the idea is that 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 worldview is um, does result in affecting the culture, and the way it does that is. It's taught in the ivory towers that we don't know about, right? Academia. And that's all that academic abstract speak. Now, that's where they were ta- teaching Marxism for decades and postmodernity. And only recently we do hear about it. But what happens is they teach the students, and then the students absorb it. And the students go out and get jobs and grow up, and they're living it out. And that's right. what we see now with all the corporations, all the media, all the government has been captured by this. What you know, for lack of a better term, this woke mentality, and that enables them all to play off each other and impose these draconian fascist uh, rules upon us. You know, whether it's you know, censoring free speech to you know, imprisoning parents who won't accept their children's gender, you know, beliefs, right? And so, um my point is, is that it does all begin in the university, and it seeps down into into our culture, and that's that's how it happens. But that's also how it happens historically as well. When you see the culture at large, and you know the, the world at large, how it's the more it rejects Christianity, the more it goes down that same thing in Europe, right? It it goes down this spiraling pathway, and they they code it on the ex, externals as Western civilization. But the real enemy is Christianity because that undergirds most of what Western civilization is, is Judeo-Christianity and the Bible. And they know that, and they don't always admit it, but they often do. And so it's all a big package, right? And it all shows that ideas have consequences. When people are teaching certain things, it may be heavy, dense philosophy to you, that doesn't make sense but it will result in affecting society because that's exactly how it works and of course it fil- you know artists like me you know we love studying all that philosophy stuff because we're interested in meaning and purpose and yeah. and uh, understanding, and that gives us the depth that we can tell our stories yeah. or paint our paintings or sing our music and so we are consciously incorporate i, I say the we collectively not me personally right. but the artists will that's why you always see certain um, certain uh Paradigm shifts in in movies. Say, for instance, whatever becomes the more popular worldview. For instance, the multiverse. Right. The multiverse yes. was, you know, a pseudo scientific belief that there's multiple universes, and that's, you know, that's got you know, decades old uh, origins, starting in academia again, science, and it's just a way to try to avoid God, yeah. creating a universe where you don't need him. But eventually, now, have you noticed? All the hero, all the Marvel movies are all multiverse. Multiverse is a common thing. <laughs> Not because they're in on a conspiracy. It's that the creative people go, Oh, there's an interesting, unique concept. And they all grab on it. And then it feeds off of one another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they create more and more works that reflect that worldview. Yeah. And then that siphons down to the common man who doesn't understand the philosophy nature of it. Right. They just ingest it through the dramatic expression of that philosophy. And that's all that matters. Yeah. up man um the
1: <laughs> <laughs> i know we got some awesome jingles uh the yeah. um uh, hey the, you were gonna show my my commercial for crew logic oh, of course of course yes we'll play that okay. definitely um uh, we got the whole thing ready to go here and queued up if we want to play it uh in a little bit here but um i did want to mention you brought up earlier the uh the idea of how the uh, because of all of this philosophy, the social, not the socialism, but the, you know, the Marxism and then the, the Antichrist spirit more generally, there is a, and post, you bring up postmodernism, and uh, one of the things that Basil and I have been looking at uh, more recently in the last few years is the work of Karl Teichrib, the, the whole idea of re-enchantment yeah. in, in sort of a post postmodernism era where, yes, now that they're... Anything goes. We're in a multiverse, I guess. You know, there's just all these different worlds, and we're just one in an infinite number of universes. That you know, all this whole this, which, by the way, I think has sort of destroyed the Marvel brand to some extent. <laughs> yeah. Because now it's like, okay, well, bad guys can be good guys. Good, I mean, it doesn't even matter anymore. It's just whatever the, uh, the lens that the story is presented is, I guess, the version that we're going to get, <laughs> kind of thing, right? Yeah, it, it loses yeah. a little bit of the. A deeper impact of, of
3: what happens in those films, but um, if I can if yeah. I can add relativism that's it's also an expression of relativism. Yeah, yeah. So relativism is ultimately an unsatisfying storytelling. See, because we are all created in the image of God, we all have a sense of a conscience that there is right and wrong. Despite all the atheistic philosophy, they everyone still goes no, there's right and wrong, and we need that in our stories. And if we don't get it, as you deconstruct um, things into relativism. That's not going to satisfy our, our natures. The, you know, you, the, There might be some interesting ideas that arise, but the storytelling is not satisfying. Yeah. You, you have to have some moral punch to what you're saying. Right, right. yeah. The, um, to your point, we, we just uh,
1: recently did a breakdown of, uh, and I don't know if you know this, uh, Brian, but um, the University of Exeter is starting a new master's program for magic and the occult. Really? Yes. <laughs> so it's an actual postgraduate degree that you can get an MA in magic and occult science. I'll send you the link and you can take a look at it. But yeah. uh, I, I think that is what's coming here is the result of all of this, because, you know, the human the human being cannot be without ritual, cannot be without worship. And, and those are very essential things. It's just a matter of what you're worshiping, what rituals you are uh, accustomed to. And um, yeah. if you look at the establishment, you, you, it seems that atheism, especially with the the movement of new atheism, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, the four horsemen of atheism, all this stuff, that got thoroughly defeated in the uh, halls of academia, yeah. in my opinion. You know, guys like William Lane Craig, all these Christian philosophers and theologians came out and just abolished <laughs> the, whole, yeah. uh, the whole argument. And so it's been interesting to see in response to that uh, academia move more towards these kind of new agey woo woo type of you know multiverse. It's quantum science. It's all this kind of stuff, and it's very elaborate.
3: Folk, folk science, folk science. You
1: know? But it's yeah. this reemergence of mythology, and that's yes. that's what Carl tyker has been talking about—the reenchantment. And and so yes, of course we're going to have masters in magic and occult sciences because we need magic magical you know people with magic degrees or whatever from the academic levels to uh f- help facilitate the understanding of what's happening in the world and there's a gentleman named jeff charlotte so a few weeks ago we reported on the story and we said we're gonna see these occult type of guys that, that are gonna start breaking down news events and sure enough within weeks uh, a guy named jeff charlotte who's a i don't know if you've heard of jeff charlotte he's a new york no. times bestseller and uh he comes out. He's breaking down a Trump speech, and he's talking about how uh, using martyrs like Ashley Babbitt is uh, just a, a card in the deck of tarot cards of his whole magical <laughs> thing. It's a it's a whole thing, and he's doing the thing where it's you know and what an MA in occult and magic sciences would do in deconstructing a Trump speech, which we were like, oh my gosh, it's actually happening already. Um, yeah. So so that's where we're moving towards. Um, which I think is fascinating that it, to have that character, bringing it back to the, to cruel logic, to have that Christian character who is ill-equipped, I think that is an experience that a lot of believers have. And I think I, I've come across a lot of younger believers who, and anytime the topic gets a little heavy, they're, they're hesitant to talk about it or they'll say, eh, I don't know yeah. enough about it or something. Um, but they are interested. Yeah. Uh, and I think, uh, stories like this can help drive or inspire deeper, deeper uh, investigations into some of those topics, because yeah, it, in the end, I think for, for you, for me, and for many people, you find the truth of God, the truth of the the Bible, those things resonate with reality the best. It's not so much that you just have this blind faith. No, the, what they're saying, sin, fallen nature, it resonates with what I see in the world around me. So uh, yeah. if people can just investigate in that, in that center, through that lens, um, th- that will be something that. You know, beyond just entertain, Brian. your book can really draw some people to find Christ at the end of this,
3: yeah, but i want to I want to warn people that uh, two things. One is, um this does not, you know, I'm speaking, you know I'm speaking on a level that many artists would not be willing to admit. Uh, th- and that is that uh, we are all driven by our worldviews and we are all communicating what we believe is the true meaning of of the world and how we ought to live. yeah throughout stories but that doesn't mean that I believe that storytelling in the arts and movies and all that stuff is just a sort of um, just a shell in order to be a ser- a shell to cover our sermon this is one of the big problems with a lot of Christians mm. who do engage in their arts where they feel that the arts is the art is just a medium that's supposed. The the most important thing is the message, and and they elevate message over craft, if if I can put it as simply as possible. Mm, yeah. And I believe the way God created us was that no, we should elevate craft equally as as high as our message, and that's the perfect balance that we seek. We're not creating propaganda. Um, in my story, crew logic, I seek to depict. Um, the atheists or the non-Christians fairly inaccurately with strengths as well as weaknesses, yeah. and the Christians as well have strengths and weaknesses. Yes, I have a worldview that is in the story, but i'm I'm not depicting this like you see a lot of Hollywood movies that attack you know, political movies, yeah, right. That, yeah. that, that are propaganda and stuff. Mm. Um, I don't do that cause I, I don't believe that's reality. I believe reality is bigger than me and that I admit that it's, it's, it's a gray messy area at times. That doesn't mean truth is, but it, but it, it, it's, it's a, a kind of a humility that we need when we're telling our stories. Yeah, and absolutely. so you have, you have to be, um, you, you, it cannot be about propaganda, but that doesn't mean you don't have any message at all. It's finding that perfect balance, just like Jesus Christ is the perfect incarnation, equally human and equally God. Right? You can't Amen. say he's more than one of the because if you say he's more than one or the other, you you create heresy. Right? I think it's the same thing with craft and message, and and that's so. It's not to me. It's not about propaganda. If I, if 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 I'm writing something and it's not an entertaining scene or an entertaining chapter. Or an entertaining concept i don't write it, so but by the same token, i don't write anything without you know filtering it through my worldview, just like you don't watch anything or read anything without filtering it through your worldview. yeah, the other thing I wanted to say was that uh, uh, in in saying this, I also want to warn the readers because you know my readers are mostly Christians, that you know this book is not for the faint of heart, um, while I don't show gross murders and stuff like that. I do have crime scenes and such from the serial killer, but it's not like exploitative in any way. But I also had to accurately depict the evil of that, that university world. And so there's, there's some F-bombs in there. There's some bad language because this is how the students actually talk. And we have to understand this hive mentality is a mentality that's driven by language and language crafts reality in their minds, and language results in consequences, right? Mm-hmm. So if you don't, it, it, the the F word is the number one word in these students' um, vocabulary along with Hitler and, and you know, you're a Hitler, you're a Nazi. But um, if I don't show that, you're not gonna see the true depth of evil, depravity, hatred and violence in the hearts of of this philosophy as well as the students. Yeah. And therefore their violence wouldn't make as much sense. But when you, you know, it's the reality of what do they do before they, what does a human do before he engages in violence? He justifies it to himself or others, primarily through his language, right? They're Nazis, so hey, it's okay to kill a Nazi, right? We're, we're domestic terrorists. Right. That's why the government's trying to paint us as domestic terrorists, yeah. so that it can justify violence against us. Well, in the same way I show these students as realistically as possible, they have what's called sex week in on most college campuses where they engage in bizarre you know, communication and education of bizarre things from BDSM to you know, you know, bondage and stuff to kinks, fetishes, and all this stuff. Well, you know, I don't, dis- I don't describe the sex acts, but I make a lot of references. I show the reality of the evil because the power of the redemption in your story. Will have no impact, no power at all if you don't accurately show that evil. So just be forewarned there that it does it does get a little um, a little um, gritty at times. But I, you know, if you can trust me to say, hey, the the redemption uh, by the end of the story is is particularly potent because of that.
1: Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you have to accurately reflect the world in which this evolved with you language you're writing a book you have to use the language i i don't think anybody would be mad at you for using a couple f-bombs and by characters or whatever well um, i have gotten that some responses sure, to people yeah, are like of course i
3: started reading this book and the f-bomb and and i that no christian would write this no christian would write that <laughs> forgive me if i sound a little sarcastic but it's like Hello, the Bible has blasphemy. The Bible shows people blaspheming God. The Bible shows people committing gang rape. You know, the Bible shows people uh, saying all kinds of sarcastic and evil, wicked things because it's contrasting evil with good. So you've got to show that. Now, the important thing is you have to show the good, and I think... That's the problem with the modern nihilistic storytelling we see oftentimes, like whether it's Game of Thrones or uh, other series like that, where there there is no goodness really. It's all just shades of evil and power. Everything's power. Right? Yeah, that's a great segue. I was
1: just going to mention and tie it back to the conversation with Jeff Charlotte. Uh, Jeff Charlotte, had, we again we reported on him doing this whole thing with NPR breaking down the, the Trump speech through his sort of occult uh, worldview. Um, but really, he's he is kind of a nihilistic, um, uh, he doesn't believe in the supernatural, and he actually uh, says in one of um, the things that we quoted, um, he says that he doesn't believe in the supernatural powers of prayer, but he appreciates prayer's resonance in the natural world, that is, its aesthetic power. So he's yeah. actually talking about the power of the image of, let's say, the hands of prayer. He he he, appreciates the power in which the idea of prayer represents, but doesn't believe in the supernatural powers. It's like, okay, you're really splitting hairs at that point and, and trying to avoid the
3: the elephant in the room, which is maybe there's a god or maybe
1: there's a supernatural yeah. world
3: or you know, you know. And and tying this to what you said before too about mythology, you know, don't get me wrong, I actually am a deep believer in mythology. Yeah, of course. You've you have to about understand it. that mythology is not false. That's a myth. That's false. Mythology simply is stories, narratives, and motifs or images that embody the cultural values of meaning. So in other words, whatever the culture or we as an individual may believe is the meaning, we embody it within our stories. And those stories can be true or fictional. It doesn't matter. It's still a mythology. There is a Christian mythology. What is it? Well, it's this notion of of, of of a sacrificial hero who sacrifices himself to save the masses, right? That's a mythology, that's a myth, yeah. so to speak. So it's not entirely negative. And he's onto something that's true, this occultic guy, because I do believe, like I said, God creates us in such a way that there are needs in our humanity for community, for prayer, or whatever, and and just because you don't use them for the proper use doesn't mean that there isn't resonating effects that can be, this is why people who meditate a long time can also uh, have a have a more calmness about them to a certain degree. Yeah, there yeah. is some real world connections, but when you, like we're talking about when you divorce God, there's an ult, at least an ultimate end that is not good, but also a more long-term end will, will destroy your life as well, whether it's meditation or what have you. But- He's he's on to you know the power of mythology, but here's a here's the twist: is in our postmodern culture, they're turning. There is a rejection of objective reality itself. Right. It used to be no, it's you know everyone's opinion, but now it's no reality itself is actually not discernible, and that allows them then to um, to have a worldview wherein. They only believe in narratives. This is why you'll hear the word narrative a lot, because there's only narratives. This is postmodernism. And everyone's competing narratives. And the the winning narrative is the one that tells the best story, right? That resonates with the most things that you can explain in the world. It doesn't matter whether or not it's actually objectively true. It's just telling a better story. Now, that's not 100% wrong either, because you know i mean that's just us in a way there's a description a descriptive truth to that people often do not are not driven by reason calm reasoned right. intellect, and yeah. propositional truth it it people are often uh, affected by whatever tell, whoever tells the best story and and that's what my goal is is to tell the best story i still believe there's objective reality and truth and my goal is is to tell a story that that Connects with that objective reality, but the power it does is in the story, whether or not it's a lie or the truth, story will affect people, change the culture. And so, the postmodernists who have rejected God and objective reality that's why they have such effect because they worship the story, they worship the narrative, the, 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 uh, the mythology of it, and they become really good at crafting those stories to catch people. That's where we as Christians are behind the game. Yeah. We still are thinking, we're, there's nothing wrong with believing in facts and we have to marshal facts and reason and logic, but we need to start focusing more on the narrative, on the way we tell our stories um, and, and embody that logic within the story because story trumps logic and reason whether it's good or bad story is going to win every time i think yeah and if you tell a better story versus the guy who's very logical and pointing out the facts people are going to be drawn to the emotion of the story the 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 humanity of the story right the it's it's touching us in ways that logic does not and this is not a, you know again this we are creatures who are we are reasoned we are creatures who have reason and emotion and I think the best approach is to try to encompass those within the good story. Um, but it's just recognizing the nature of reality as such that um, logic is important, we have to do it, but we have to realize that it doesn't beat story. And that's why when you see sometimes some of the, you know, Christopher Hitchens is a classic example of this, you know, he 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 was one of those atheists, you know, and of course he's dead now, the late Christian H- Christopher Hitchens, and now he knows what's true, but... But right. he um, he was so good with rhetoric and so good at telling a story that that he would win even though he was losing the content. You know, right. he would win the, the crowd.
1: Who, <laughs> he would win the, the, the yeah, he would win the crowd. the crowd. Yeah,
3: and the Christian who sits there trying to roll out the facts, it just doesn't touch people. You know what I mean? And that's what's so sad. But I think there's nothing wrong with embracing that reality and including it into us. If you want to be logical, if you want to make those arguments, fine. But learn how to be rhetorical, how to tell a good story, how to be emotional in that, and you'll have much better effect on people.
1: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We've uh, been talking a lot about fifth generation warfare. I don't know if you have looked into this topic. No. Uh, it's it's somewhat of an obscure topic. There's, there are people in academia starting to look at this. Uh, and the idea is that Unlike convent, conventional warfare, which you know the people who have written on it have you know they go through the first generation, second generation, third and fourth, which mm-hmm. we've seen in different types of physical conflict and wars over the centuries. The idea of fifth generation warfare is that it's marked by stealth or ambiguity and and non-state actors. And one of the main ways in which this fifth generation warfare is fought is by narrative It's crafting narrative and it's creating stories that people uh, believe and are swayed to act a certain way, whether it's, you know, a a whole group of people coming together and and going uh, pro-Palestine, anti-Zionists in the streets or whatever it might be. And it's it's fascinating because there's another example, which is kind of from left field, but I think it's uh, relevant to this conversation about narrative. Pay close attention, listener to the next this is the end of 2023 we're going into 2024 2025 start paying attention to the cryptocurrency markets and pay attention to the narratives because that's all cryptocurrencies are for the most part most projects don't have a product they don't have anything they have a story we're going to solve this great thing and then boom hundred their coin is worth hundreds of millions of dollars and uh, you better cash out because that narrative will fall apart when there's no product at the end of the the tunnel there. But
3: it's it's, I, I it's like wild. To, I like to bring in the the, the side of reality now. Um, yes, we need to understand that, and yes, we need to embrace it and add it because we're losing. But the the perfect you just give one perfect example, and there are others of here's what happens when the culture uh does learn uh, uh, or does seek to reject objective reality and facts and embrace narrative and so the newest generation the Z generation yeah there's they're in some ways they're more open to discussing some things um than others might be but they are the most easily manipulated by the masses of anyone because they just believe any story that they read that they watch on TikTok or whatever they believe it all as long as it kind of makes sense to them and they don't care about facts. And so they are the ones who are so easily controlled. They think they're, they're free and they look down on that older generation as, you know, fuddy duddies or whatever, you know, um, but like they are being manipulated and controlled the the easiest because they've jettisoned facts and the concern for facts. And, and that's why we can never ourselves do that. Um, but we just need to learn how to add that, you know, that element of storytelling to the facts and to our reason and logic. Right. You know, if that makes sense. Yeah, a, a good story
1: is even better when you learn. It's it's like any you yeah. know movie that you like. Oh, it's a great story. And then when you learn what's true about it, and you go, Oh wow, you know, it's even more impactful. Yeah. Like wow, that 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 is crazy that that happened or that person experienced that or something. Um, I want to. Uh, bring it back to cruel logic specifically and you gave me a page with uh some images some some ups of some characters and uh I'd like to just uh, get your you know description of certain characters I have pulled up here Charles
3: Cullen who is yeah. who is he and uh who's he in the story So Charles Cullen is the um the Serial killer in the story, yeah, it kind of looks like him. And like, yeah, like I said, he's a he's a philosophy professor who was gone rogue. I don't know, uh, but but um, but here is the thing: he has taken his philosophy to its logical conclusion. And I am not again. I am not going to go in deep into all the details because that would reveal twists and stuff. But uh, yeah, so he's he's one of those characters. And um, uh, the, interestingly, one of the protagonists which should be on there, um, this, this is an interesting character, is um, scroll down to the, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking, blanking out on the names. <laughs>
1: it's okay, yeah, there's uh, a, lot to,
3: a lot to keep track of here. Yeah, what's the next guy down? Um, Let's see, well. Callenger, Joseph Callenger. Uh, yes, Callenger. So Joseph Callenger is a protagonist. And what he is, is he is a psychology professor who knows the killer, and he is called in by the cop to help track him down, right? And what's interesting about this Joseph Callenger is he's kind of like a, I modeled him on, on a Jordan Peterson. And, but mm. it's not just Jordan Peterson, it's this whole sort of another movement of people out there that I find intri- just intriguing, just fascinating. And I, and I wanna understand them more, and that is there are these people who are defending Western civilization um, defending even Judeo-Christianity as a founding ethical element of that without themselves being Christians or, you know, devoted followers in that sense. Now, of course, Joan Peterson's somewhere in, the, in between there, but but there's others like Douglas Murray, um, you know, Ayaan Hersia Ali was one, and she's just converted to Christianity herself. Uh, but Tom Holland's another historian. They all support Western civilization, but they don't actually have a personal faith in the God that they're defending, which is kind of interesting to me. And I wanted to explore that reality, so I have my character Joseph Callender being very much like that. And of course, you know, that's the uh, you know uh, he's the guy who defends the mythology as part of our nature, as part of reality, and he would defend the Judeo-Christian mythology but he himself is a Jew who's, who's a, a lapsed Jew, so he doesn't have the personal <laughs> faith himself in this story, right? Yeah. And, and that part of his journey is coming face to face with, what are you doing? What does it mean for you to be defending this thing that you don't really believe? You believe it in a practical sense in terms of keeping order in society rather than chaos but you don't really have the reality in your own heart. So what does that mean? What does that, where does that lead? Yeah. And this isn't a judgmental uh, thing. This is something I respect these. In fact, Jordan Peterson, Doug Murray, Douglas Murray, I, I respect them more than just about anybody else, you know, um, yeah. Victor Davis Hansen, a lot of these guys, you know, and, um, but I want to understand them. And, and that's oftentimes, that's what I do as a writer. If there's a, a certain kind of a character, a certain kind of person out there, uh, I, I'm like, I want to understand this. So I make them one of my characters and I, put them through the ringer of the story and what would they think and how would they act? And that, that was um, one of my motivations in, in creating that character. And it was really fun too, because I love Jordan Peterson. So, you know, I mean, he's not, he's not Jordan Peterson, you know, but he's just similar in that sense. Influenced
1: by the, the body of work and the influence of uh, Jordan Peterson and culture. Yeah. You know, it's, I, I found it interesting that you brought up that, um, uh, you brought up the Jewish part because just an observation is that those who tend to fit the profile that you mentioned, I, I don't know about the specific names you, all the ones you mentioned, but they tend to be of Jew, like um, uh, Doug Prager. He's one of them that I think is another one. He's Jewish. Oh, you mean he's Dennis, a, Prager? Dennis Prager. I'm sorry. Dennis Prager. Yeah. Openly yeah. Jewish defending all the stuff, the same sort of thing, um, but not a Christian, you know? So there, there's a lot of that out there, but you know, that's where the conversation of the Judeo-Christian element comes in and, and I've absolutely I've actually uh, commented recently we don't have to go down this rabbit trail because you know the only thing at the bottom of that are probably echo chambers and artificial uh, <laughs> ignorance or whatever it is <laughs> insanity but I, I have said that the that they're going to try to tear apart this idea of judeo christian and they're gonna they're gonna yeah. really put a a, a a rift between Christians and Jews in this country, as sort of Good a point. final blow to the country. So that that's something I already see
3: taking place because of this situation. Yeah, you're right. Because like the first stage is to link the Jews with whites and Christians, which is what they've been doing to to demonize them. But now the backlash is coming and people cannot deny the fact that wait a minute, Jews really are one of the most persecuted minorities in the whole world throughout all of history. And so it's like, so now I think you're right. I actually think you're right. So now, well, how can they, okay, what can they do? Well, distance them from Christians. Show them as enemies of or Christians as their enemies. And, um, and, and, and maybe they're not as white as we were saying they were. You know, they, they, whatever their enemy is, they try to make them white. Like if there's a Hispanic criminal, he's a white Hispanic, right? right. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, they don't call Barack Obama white, even though he is half white. Mm-hmm. But his half black makes him black. But in reality, you could also say he's white. Which, by the way, in CrewLogic, I also deal with this insanity of the the racial concepts that are going on oh, throughout yeah. the wokeism, and I'm not going to give away the the twists and some of the funny things that do occur in there. But I, I do deal with that, the, this insanity of this racial uh, uh, obsession of wokeism, you know, um, and and in fact of the whole, you know, left wing enterprise. It's you know trying to pit. All the people of color and all the people of, who are marginalized minorities, queers and gays and all this, all on one side. And then the white male heterosexual Christian uh, cisgender man is on the other. And he's the oppressor and they are the oppressed. And the, we've heard this before, oppressor, pressed, oppressed, oppressed. Mentality, you know, we, it, it, you know, there was a lot of it in in Karl Marx, but it's his was more economic oriented. But now it's on racial orientation. But that is a, another key element of the woke mentality of reducing everything to power, and therefore there's two categories, oppressed and oppressor. And if the in the white man, white male heterosexual Christian, if they are inherently oppressor, then everything they do is wrong, and everything they are is wrong. In fact. It's Nazi theory, it's Nazi racial theory with the the, um, the races swapped, right? But it's still the same racial theory of racism, you know? Yeah. So that's all, I, I deal with all that and the insanity of the transgender ideology and racial ideology within the campus. I deal with some of the absurdities of it and what it looks like in, in quite a clever way. I think people will enjoy it. The race wars. Race wars. The race war. I've warned you and warned you and warned you. We got it all here. We got all the jingles. <laughs> we got
1: everything you can imagine. I am curious about uh, this character. There's some other characters that you have here. Edward Marchenko?
3: Marchenko, yeah. yeah Marchenko? he looks
1: like a scary, scary fella.
3: Well, you know, he's just, he's an art student, you know? So he's kind of a goth art student. Hey, that's still around, man. They still, you know, dress like that and such. Um, so, uh, yeah, he's one of the... Uh, Again, I don't want to give away twists. All right, but he is actually one of the art students who's friends with the female protagonist, who's Anna's Zwanziger. and she's the beautiful uh, redhead student who's a who's a psychology student getting her uh, PhD, working with Joseph Callinger, and so she's also still a student, so she knows him. He's a he's a, a a good friend of her, but he's he's obsessed with her. And he's kind of stalking her in a friendly way, and she doesn't. She thinks he's harmless, and but other people think differently. And uh, you'll have to see, read the rest of the story to find out what really happens with that.
1: Oh, always the relationship dramas interwoven into any story is always a draw. Yes, yes, yes,
3: <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um,
1: let's see. Uh, let's see. I, I like these mock-ups because they sort of just uh, allow you to. Uh, I, I'm I'm going a- to I'm going to speculate. Yeah, I know AI is fantastic. Midjourney, whatever you got going on over there, maybe uh yeah, Fucus. Have you seen Fucus? That's the the latest. No. Uh, it's derived off of Midjourney. You're able to create a character and then present that character in different scenes. It's actually pretty powerful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, it's going to be. I think you're going to enjoy that if you can get <laughs> your hands on that. Um, Dr. Bell Gunnis. This one seems like uh, I think I might know who. Bell Gunnis is uh, about, or, or, uh, you know, what the character represents. But uh, if you could,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah. Bell Gunnis is a uh, a trans woman, uh, as they call it in in on campus. So the uh, biological male is that right? <laughs> just just to yes, keep my my yes. mind
1: straight because I could I always get confused even now.
3: Yeah, and anyway, he he's lecturing on campus as well, and he's lecturing about the trans ideology, and he becomes one of the victims. So so a lot of those professors on there are some of them are the victims that that of of Cullen. So you know that's a means of really wrestling with those ideologies and such. So yeah, and on campus everyone is playing by all the games. You know everyone does their pronouns and you know and in fact Joseph Callinger has Bel Gunnis lecture to his class even though he doesn't believe in it. He believes in free speech inquiry and he believes in presenting both sides of the issue, which is something that colleges do not believe in anymore. Um, they only believe in presenting the one side, which is the woke leftist side. But he, he even though he see, he's in the midst of that, he himself won't stoop to that. And so he'll have her, have him speak in his class, uh, and 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 he actually, Bell Gunnis will actually describe the sort of postmodernism transgender ideology in the story.
1: I'm seeing another image uh, titled "The
3: Autonomous Zone." Yeah. yeah. Looks like a. Yeah. So what happens is some students rise up. Uh, there's an an incident or two that occurs that I won't tell you that um, that causes the students to unite and create a autonomous zone like Chaz basically, right. but but they call it. POCAs, which is people of color autonomous zone. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. You gotta be careful with some of that. They might actually pick that up, you know, and use yeah, it in real. And, and they, do that's it. the kind of thing that they do. You know, yeah. they're, they're not great with ideas, yeah. but they're good at taking them. I all, I have some characters who are part of an Antifa chapter in the in the college as well. Yeah, I see that. And so I'm bringing in the Antifa and and what the, what their motive and operations are like, and and how they operate with people, and and how they uh, recruit. Kids into their into their you know vision and such, and what are the logical consequences, or what are the real world consequences of their beliefs?
1: So, is this a a story that can have sequels, and is it, or does uh, the professor just take everyone out, and there's it's a nihilistic ending where it's just everyone's gone, and you know, you need a multiverse. Well, you know, that's a good
3: question. I mean, I wrote it as a standalone novel, okay. so I did not intend to write it um, as a trilogy, which is a very common thing, and and as a writer we tend to write want to write a series of books because that's the better way to sell more and make more money and cuz we got to make a living right and you, by selling individual standalone books are harder to sell <clears throat> unless you're already a known author however and and i could i i might i've thought of doing a prequel to it um i've i've thought of doing some twists and making a sequel but right now my heart for it was just as a standalone. And I actually do have other novels in the series, completely different, completely different stories, not connected, but again, with that same theological, philosophical motif in them. And the next one that I'm planning on writing, uh, which I can't say anything about yet, but it will be as uh, sort of shocking in a way uh, and interesting as Cruel Logic, but in a different world, set in a different time period and in a different world. All right. Medieval- so I will have a series, but there'll be st- a series of common themes and you know motifs, but uh, standalone ser- not, uh, stories.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd like to see some uh, mm. alchemists in medieval times and their their woke struggles. That'll be interesting. <laughs>
2: um,
1: so great that you know I think uh, people will be curious enough to at least check out the book. And you have done some other projects. I just want to touch on before we let you go here. Uh, you sent over, and I, and I do remember. Uh, somebody talking about this, but you helped or, or, uh, were part
3: of My Son Hunter? Is that what? Yeah. I actually wrote the script for the movie, right. My Son Hunter. Um, <laughs> he, he, and it's a story of Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, very timely, isn't it? Of uh, um, great timing. And, but it's not a documentary. It's a narrative, it's a, it's a narrative fictional story, but it's based on the truth, based on the facts. It's a political satire. So kind of like The Big Short or Wolf of Wall Street, you know, where you they we break the fourth wall. We uh, it, it enables you to make some jokes at the same time you're showing what really happened. In other words, because what what he got away with was so absurd that he get got away with it that it it, it is funny. You know, you got to stand back and laugh or you'll just weep for the destruction <laughs> of the of the country, right? right? Yeah, yeah. And so we got Lawrence Fox to star. He's brilliant. He stars as uh, Hunter Biden, and. Um, uh, and some other great actors and characters in there. Um, I see Gina Carano
1: is. in there. She was the one that got canceled by Star yes. Wars. Yes, yeah, we got yeah. Gina
3: Carano. She plays a, a side part as a um, a secret service agent to Joe Biden. Oh. And she, it's a little bit through her perspective and such. But, uh, of course, Hollywood would not distribute it anyway. So you can only get it online at mysonhunter.com. And if you want to see, and what's ironic is I've, I've been seeing, you know, all this stuff that's been coming out and except for some of the more newer, the things within the last couple months have been a little bit more extended beyond what we knew, but Most everything that's coming out now that people feel like it's new, it's been there all along. I knew about it for a couple years and anyone who knew who would listen to those who were canceled because they were speaking out about it when no one else, when they were, when it's now come out that the FBI, the, the, uh, uh, Department of Homeland Security actually worked with Twitter and other companies to, and Facebook to suppress all this information about the the laptop right and they knew it and they, and again that's another deeply criminal activity but nonetheless it seems new to people but I I'm proud to say that a lot of the the newer uh, revelations are all in the movie cuz I I knew about that stuff and I was right but I didn't it wasn't my research I I you know I obviously was reading all the news articles that were like from the New York Post and such, who, who, who had who had covered it while while it was being suppressed by everybody else. But um, it's kind of exciting that you know you can watch that movie now, and it's very relevant even till today. You know, I, I had one one movie producer who was who who passed on trying to. Um, you know, we were t- taking it to him to help us get it distributed. And he passed on it because he said, you know, it's kind of old news. This was like a year ago mm. before it came out. It's so like, it's, you know, it's old news. And I'm like, no, it's not. And sure enough, now a year later, it's more news than ever was, yeah. you know? So yeah, it, it, yeah it it's depends, quite interesting.
1: It depends on where you are on the the, the paradigm or the spectrum of uh, truth seeking or at least information seeking, because you're right. Absolutely. The, the, I remember when, Everything was taking place with uh, the New York Post being taken down on Twitter. Mm-hmm. While it was happening, people were calling out like, no, this is something's wrong. There's something going on yeah. here. It was so obvious just from the public standpoint who pay attention. Um, but as, as usual, you know, that's all dismissed. It's all crazy talk. And then a few years, a few months, or however long it is later, the me- mainstream mm-hmm. media will report it. And then again, the people paying attention go, yeah, we knew this. And then everyone else goes, "Ah," oh! <laughs> freak out over it. Pretty pretty yeah. typical pattern, but you know it's a great. Uh, I like I like that it's a kind of a satire thing. It it will it, it sort of marks our time. You know, if anything, it'll it'll preserve yeah. the absurdity it's, of
3: what happened. Yeah, it's dark satire. You know, we, I mean, look, we start with we we have the drugs and the prostitutes but that's not the goal of the story it ultimately leads to the real crimes that the the Biden crime family has been engaged in but but by doing it as a political satire it allows you to get a lot of information in in fast bites and in a funny context that you can keep the information moving because you know there's so many de- it was so such a complex Uh, uh, criminal network that you just it's just overwhelming right and I thought how can we get all this information without being boring well yeah if you put it in the find the most absurd things and make it absurdist dark humor and that allows you to get a lot of information but also in a way it's becomes commentary on it as well. The fact that they're getting away with all this is just amazing, right? And and don't be fooled by what's going on now with him having forced to be uh come in deposition to Congress. He you know, he's gonna get away with it. We all know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, um but but dealing with that, it's just powerful. Um, yeah, in fact I don't I wouldn't have done it if they wanted a documentary because I, I just don't do wanna do documentaries anymore. They're just they're not as they're not as interesting to me as doing a, a good fictional story. Oh, here's the other thing I wanted to stress too. I was particularly proud of the fact that all the left-wing media outlets just attacked our movie and just tried to make it bad, you know. Oh, it's garbage, isn't that, you know. And but it was interesting because some of them recognized the fact that when when they didn't know this, but when we started out with that movie, the producers came to me and said, we want to do a movie on Hunter Biden's laptop, but we don't want it to be a documentary. And, and 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 we don't know what to do. So come up with some ideas. So I came up with some ideas, and this was one they picked. And we went down that path, and um, we all agreed this is not going to be a hit piece because we're all conservatives. You know, we want to tell a story and and such, but this isn't about you know uh, demonizing Hunter Biden. You know, actually, the reason why I wrote this story, I would have been bored by just political. Garbage. Anyway, the thing that made it so intriguing to me was Hunter Biden is a fascinating, tragic person. You know, he's he's. If you look at the the relationship with his father and his deceased brother, mm-hmm. yeah. it was a, a father with two sons, and his deceased brother was was the, the 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 favorite, the good guy. He was attorney general and stuff, and he was he was actually going to ultimately run for president one day, right? And then Hunter is this F up who's a drug addict, sex addict, you know, and he's literally fighting for the love of his father. And he can't be the son that the 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 son that died, the good son dies, and he's left trying to clamor for his. So it's a it's this amazing, tragic, uh pathos you know of Uh this family relationships with the father and the sons and that's actually intriguing to me and and it's you know it's not uncommon you know and so we wanted to depict him fairly and accurately and humanly because he's not an evil demon right i was gonna say it sounds like they're human or something i thought these were all just ghouls some of of the left media outlets (laughs) it was so funny they're like you know it was kind of surprising Hunter Biden was actually kind of empathetic. <laughs> you know, they they were unaware that they were making him empathetic. You know, like we're unaware of it because they, if they They made a movie about a political opponent, they would demonize. So they would assume we would demonize and they, they're confused. They have no clue about how good storytelling is truly empathetic, even if you disagree with the villain. Right. And it was so funny because uh, it kind of confirmed to me that we did it right. We did it just right. Uh, They were, and some acknowledged that, yeah, you know, actually they didn't demonize them and, you know, but. But we hated it because it, you know, obviously right. shows truth about yeah, the vibes. Yeah. who who
1: who helped yeah. produce it and all that stuff has to do with it too. So uh, that's all. You know, I'm gonna go. I won't. I would like to go check it out now, and it's that's and fun. I'd like to go see it. Um, but and just to um, start wrapping up the conversation, where do you see? Because you know, I'm looking at the trailer. It's top notch. Obviously, you know, as good as any Hollywood film, and obviously, you know, that type of production now is I wouldn't say easier. Per, well. It's more accessible. Yeah. Yeah. It's more accessible than it was in in obviously prior decades. Where do you see media creation uh, content like this going? Because obviously the the Hollywood situation is kind of messy right now. It's 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 uh it's it's a problem economically. Things are moving away from California in general, but you know Hollywood yes. being a big part of that, uh, they have exported a worldview for a good I don't know five six seven decades. I mean they've been. The tip of the spear yeah. when it comes to creating culture, uh, but and that engine, it, it's obviously not going to stop overnight, but it does seem to be showing its cracks and some uh, people are moving away yeah. from it. They're leaving Babylon, as it were, uh, in a sense. So yeah. where do you see all that going, especially with the writer strike and, and any insight on that?
3: Yeah, well, that's what I call the parallel economy concept. So when I when I was younger, my goal was like I didn't believe in being a separatist and all that. You know, I want to be in the world, not of it. I wanted to make Hollywood movies with Christian worldview, right? And and that's how. Look, I don't I don't disparage Christian movies, but uh, well, a lot of them are still so poorly done, right? But I've never wanted to make Christian movies because I didn't want to be that outsider,s just you know, making you know movies for the the choir type of thing, you know, um, I'm not against it. It just wasn't me. And, but when it gets to the point where now I'm not allowed to even make it because they're hunting people like me down and, uh, Taking work away from us, keeping keeping us from being able to work and make a living. Now the the parallel, the notion of the parallel economy is a real a real thing because because of the fascistic tendencies of the woke mind, there's no longer a willingness to disagree agree to disagree or why well, I disagree with you politically, but we can tell a good story together or whatever. That's no longer acceptable. You have to. It's their religion. You have to agree with their doctrine, or you are evil, and you must be uh, you know um, deplatformed and demonetized and and starve to death you know that's what they ultimately want f- f- uh, for us so it forced a lot of us to just Not because, oh, I don't have anything to do with Hollywood, so I'm going to go do my own thing. No, it's they won't let me work. So I, and I'm not going to stop. So I'm, (laughs) you know, I'm going to work outside here. And, you know, the Daily Wire is a great example. Like, oh, we're going to build our own little mini studio and our own streaming service and put in our own content. And I, like, it's because you have to, because no one will hire you. Uh, No one would, no Hollywood movie, and they try to get some movies distributed, like, no Hollywood entity would distribute anything from the Daily Wire because of their bigotry and prejudice. This in Hollywood, right? And so this is just a reality now. Now, like you said, you know, be, because of the nature of filmmaking now and the quality of tech, you really can do high quality for super cheap. Even special effects stuff, which is that's the democratization of technology. That's great. There's yeah. a lot of negative to it as well, but but the positive side is yeah. So you can we can actually exist in a parallel economy now. And we, we're doing it out of necessity, not because we wanted to, it's because they won't let us, they're kicking us out of the game, so to speak, and and we're not going to stop. And so, yeah, and that's, that's um you know, it's not too different from what I did with my own novels, where, you know, when I first started writing a novel, you know, I tried to get a Christian agent, because it's a, you know, Bible novel about Noah. Okay, so I get a Christian agent, and I contacted Christian publishers, they wouldn't take it, you know, and I think it's because there's, too much sex and violence in it, uh, you know, rate, rated PG-13 uh, or whatever. And and Christian publishers don't know what to do with that because they have, you know, they have these categories that you have to fit into. And, uh, and you know, also it was my first novel. Maybe it wasn't as good as I had hoped, but it, it, it forced me. No one else would take it, so... I'll self-publish it. And that was when it was just starting in like 2011, right? That was just starting to crest. So I did it and lo and behold, it blew up and became really popular. And so I kept writing and now my books dominate the top 10 of biblical fiction and Christian fantasy and such and such. And, um, which confirms that, okay, I'm not a bad writer, (laughs) but, uh, it was that necessity, out of necessity, I had to do it myself. And I'm actually more successful because of that, because I I have been published by a publisher. And my books, even after 20 years, my book is still in print because it's still selling. But I get a pittance of the royalties, you know, like less than 10% of the royalties. Whereas in my own self-published books, I'm making 40 to 70%, depending on, you know, what what, you know, avenue I'm selling uh, of royalties, which means I make enough to, to, to make a good living at it. And that's all. And that's what the self-publishing community has become, where there are many self-published authors who are making way more money than Traditionally published authors selling more books to more people, having more uh, impact than the traditionally published, and it used to be a stigma. You know, self publishing is where you print your own books and sell them out of the back of your trunk of your car. Well, and there still is a stigma, but they're dumb. They're starting to really be in the top bestseller list. They try to keep them out, and they still do in some ways. Uh, But they don't keep them out on Amazon or the numbers because the numbers speak, you know. And so that's a joy to me that that being pushed out of the the uh, establishment can can afford you actually a better way to make a living and to do what you really love and to do so, but also create those good works that won't the the good works of art that won't be accepted by the establishment. Um, and that's happened to not just Christians or conservatives, you know, like in, in the self-publishing realm, the same problem with fantasy and, and romance and all this stuff. Plus, wokeness has captured all the major publishers, too. So if you're a white person, you're not allowed to write a story um, about a black person or a person of color in any way. Um, so they wouldn't let you write the stories that, that people want to write, you know. So, uh, yes, out of necessity, it can become a great thing. I I didn't champion it in the past, but now I have to.
1: Yeah, well, I I appreciate your work. And, uh, you know, uh, in light of news about Obama helping to write a script about a cyber pandemic film that just hit over the weekend, which happens to come at a time when all the news media starts talking about how China has taken over our cyber infrastructure and everything. The timing is pretty good on everything, Uh, the... Yeah. mainstream does there. But in light of that, in contrast to that whole beast machine, uh, we appreciate uh, people like you who are doing the good work and and continuing to push forward, pushing, you know, we... Well, and you! Oh, well, yeah. Well, <laughs> well we, we've, we're, we're sort of the persistent pest. You know, we're just kind of around. They try to get rid of us and they did shut us down to a large audience, you know, uh, having a quarter million channel or a quarter million subscriber channel shut down. <gasps> and uh multiple channels afterwards shut down too it's been tough but you know it's really for us it's not about that we have been able to sustain everything through our economic model that we do here which is value for value which means we don't advertise we don't do anything we just people produce the show we call them producers because that's what that's what it that's how it works in hollywood you know people fork the cash or fork their volunteer something and then they you know help produce a piece of content and that's what we do here um much more humble much more uh uh, able to stick to the message and things of that nature, um, but yeah, it's an uphill battle for sure. It's it's hard to compete, and mm-hmm. we've been we've been harping on this idea of the difference between independent media and alternative media. So it, clearly, there is a divide between mainstream media and everybody else. I think everyone yeah. can see that. But within the everybody else realm, I think it's starting to become a little clearer now whether somebody can be sort of in the alt media. Which are basically centralized uh, entities that have created themselves as they left the mainstream. So I I see a lot of that going on. Uh, I think people like you and I were a little bit early in that sort of exodus. But over the last few years, we've seen a lot of even like left progressive Democrat journalists go out on their own and start websites about, you know, because it's all dying. (laughs) Um, So even within alternative media, there seems to be. A sort of a, an economic model that has been in place cash flow now and an established alt media versus independent media which is people like us we're completely independent we're not we're, we, I mean we yeah. okay we got children singing in the background that's always fun but <laughs> that's, okay. Um, that's okay but yeah it's it's an interesting time and I think we the tools we will use the tools the democratized tools to try to push uh, against the system as much as we can until we can't, you know, obviously there will be a point where we well, can't, but, but as long as we can, we will. So I think yep, that's uh, the important thing. Where can people find Cruel Logic and all your work?
3: Exclusively on Amazon, um, in paperback, Kindle, hardcover, and audiobook. And you can just go straight to Amazon and it's exclusively there. Um, and if you want to, you know, just Check me out more. Of course, a lot of information, when you go to Amazon, a lot of information is there anyway. But if you want to look more into me, I do have a website, Godawa.com, G-O-D-A-W-A.com. And, you know, you can find a lot of, I try to make it a cool and entertaining, interesting website um, not just to go there to buy books or something like that, but um, to go there to learn more about the stuff that I do. And a lot of free stuff that I offer that's related to the books I write, like research behind my, uh, real world research behind the fiction that I write. So yeah, those two sources.
1: Awesome. And... Uh you know, it wouldn't be a Canary cry radio episode without at least mentioning the Nephilim one time. And of course you are the author of the Chronicles of the Nephilim. So it's not, you know, usually I, we talk about something and I bring up the Nephilim and they oh don't have not really looked into it. It sounds a little crazy or whatever, but uh, you have written extensively on it. And I, I just want to ask you as a final question here in light of this whole quote unquote, alien disclosure taking place right now with all the conversations with uh, the whistleblowers and everything. Um, Specifically, has it inspired you to pick up the pen again for uh, some maybe more modern versions of the Chronicles of the Nephilim?
3: No modern versions, um, but there are more coming down the pike. In fact, I'm already on work, starting my next novel for Chronicles of the Watchers, and it is more the ancient world. There's still a lot of ancient world stories that I have to tell, and I, I can't talk about what it is yet because I'm not. Further long enough into the story, but um, it'll be the it'll be this great. It'll, it's going to be great. So there will be more Chronicles of the Watchers coming, and those are sort of like stories that fill in the gaps in Chronicles of the Nephilim. Because you know, when I did the the eight series in Nephilim, I didn't realize there was so many more stories, and I'm like, oh, I you know. So I, I'm I'm filling in those in betweens with Chronicles of the Watchers, and uh, that should be coming within the next year. Awesome, awesome. But. Mm-hmm. But if I can say at least this, yeah. since the last time I was on your show, um, the latest chronicle is Chronicles of the, the Watchers 3, which is Moses against the gods of Egypt. Ah. And just real quickly, it's the story of Moses um, told like you've never seen it before, but it's also rooted some f- shocking things that you may not have known about him and about that time period and and the story that is there in that ancient Hebrew context um, but also dealing with the watchers. And, and so now we're in Egypt, whereas my previous stories dealt a lot with the gods of Canaan and Mesopotamia, Baal and Asherah and then uh, Marduk and all that. But now we're in Egypt, so we got Os- Isis, Osiris and yeah. all that. So it'll be a fascinating new exploration of those um, those watchers, yeah. shall we say.
1: And I think that, that work is, it, it's evergreen. And I think it's going to help out a lot as the reenchantment continues, because I think what we'll, yeah. we're going to start seeing is a lot of people, you know, I, I was joking how atheists are becoming AI theists. I don't know if you noticed this, oh, but a lot of people good. are becoming theistic about the, the AI situation. And yeah. in light of that, what's fascinating is that they are readopting ancient religions References yeah. to, you know, and, and we've seen this happen in the occult for a long time. NASA, you know, naming all of their stuff based on Greek gods and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah. now it's starting yeah. to happen more culturally, where again, it's not that they necessarily worship Osiris or something like that, but they'll, they'll reference these mythological entities or gods or whatever as part of their worldview. <laughs> and it's a very fascinating yeah. thing that's taking place. So I think in light of all that, your novels with the Chronicles of the Nephilim and the Watchers uh, will be very helpful in helping new believe people new to this type of information to absorb it in story in context to historical uh documents and everything else so exactly. uh yeah, it's i think anybody who's interested they need, definitely need to go check it out and uh maybe not too late if you're listening to this uh right away to get a couple books for the, the stocking there for some folks yes yeah Makes so. a
3: great Christmas gift.
1: <laughs> well, Brian, thank you very much for uh, coming back on Canary Cry Radio. We're going to have to have you back on again. Uh, you write more books than we can keep up with. I, I don't know if you noticed, but you, your your pace of writing books is—I uh, think it's outdone even episodes of Canary Cry Radio in certain years. So, uh, well,
3: to be fair, I've slowed down the last couple of years, but um, I'm hoping to get back up to my normal two a year, two books. Two a books a instead of one.
1: I can—I I have not been able to publish one in twelve years, and Brian's doing two a year. This is. You need the guns. We'll talk about this afterwards. Okay. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much, Brian. Appreciate it. And uh, there you go. Go check out Cruel Logic, godawa.com, or go to Amazon. Go look for Cruel Logic. And yeah, thank you very much. And until next time, think outside the cage.
2: And in the wilderness, where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry and will save. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Send your heads on bold. You can buy and you can sell. The only problem is it turns into hell. Tribulation, that situation. This was